you turn in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 22? To Luke chapter 22. And we come to verse 63 this morning, and we're reading into chapter 23. So, Luke chapter 22, verse 63. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We find this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he heard that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod and the soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in uh, splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that day, for before this day they had been at enmity with each other. Amen. And we know God will always bless the reading of his own word. In the annals of legal history, there has been some notorious cases of injustice. One thinks of Lindy Chamberlain, who under uh, who, after uh, a trip to the outback, claimed that a dingo had taken her baby but was convicted of the child's murder in 1992 and sentenced to life imprisonment in prison. She was released in 1996 when a piece of baby's clothing was found in a dingo's den, establishing her innocence that indeed a dingo had taken her baby. Or more recently, the case of the English solicitor who was convicted of murdering her two children, Harry and Christopher, because the state pathologist claimed the probability of two cot deaths in one family was 73 million to one. When that pathologist was discredited and struck off, Sally Clark was released in 1999, but took to drink and died of alcohol poisoning. And then on the other side, you can think of the case of O.J. Simpson and the Oma Bombers, who are both acquitted in a, 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 in a criminal court, but found guilty in a, a civil court. It was Charles Dickens who said the uh, 
the law is an ass because donkeys are uh, stupid and very stubborn. And so often that has proved to be the case. Justice and equality for all um, are good aspirations to have, but in reality it often proves elusive when it comes to criminal proceedings. And that is nowhere more manifested uh, in the trial and the conviction of the Lord Jesus. In fact, one former Lord Chief Justice of England says that this trial was the greatest monstrosity of justice in the annals of legal history. And it is to the trials of Jesus that we turn this morning. Notice, first of all, the trials that were endured. Now, I say trials rather than trial because actually our Lord had six trials, um, three of which we have read this morning. When you put the gospel records together, you discover that Jesus, Jesus was first Uh, of all brought to Annas, and then to Caiaphas, then to the Sanhedrin, then he appeared before Pilate, then he was sent to Herod, and then he was sent back to Pilate for sentencing. That's six trials in all, three before the Jews, three before the Romans, because Herod was actually um, not a Jew, but a, a puppet of Rome. Annas, first of all, the former high priest, and the father-in-law of the present high priest, Caiaphas. He had been removed from office by the Romans, but still was the real power behind the throne. So although not in office, he was the man who pulled the strings, and nothing, absolutely nothing, happened without his permission. Then he was brought to Caiaphas, who was the official high priest. Both these trials took place at night, which was strictly forbidden by Jewish law and took place in uh, their private quarters, which again was forbidden by Jewish law. Uh, You notice there in verse 66, when day uh, break came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes. So the trials during the night were illegal, And so first thing in the morning, they call the ruling council. That's the Sanhedrin together. Now, the Sanhedrin was the Jewish, the highest Jewish court consisting of 72 members, 24 priests, 24 scribes and Pharisees, and 24 elders or Sadducees. Now, they didn't like each other, but in order to have authority with the people. It was the first power-sharing executive. So there are three trials, three Jewish trials before Annas, before Caiaphas, and before the Sanhedrin, two at night, one at daybreak. Then we're told in chapter 23 and verse 1, he was sent to Pilate, who you know was the Roman governor. And this Pilate uh, then sent him uh, to Herod because he heard the commotion had begun in Galilee, and Herod was ruler over Galilee, and he just happened to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. And then finally, Herod sent him back to Pilate, who reluctantly passed the sentence to put him to death. So we have six trials in all, three Jewish, three Roman, two at night, four during the morning, all of which stand testimony to the difficulty that they had in securing a conviction against Jesus. 
as he is hauled from pillar to post, denied sleep, and brutally mocked and mistreated. Nevertheless, he maintains his dignity. As Peter was later to say, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. The trials that were endured. Secondly, notice the charges that were pressed. There were two principal charges that were brought against Jesus. One was theological and one was political. The theological charge was brought before the Jewish courts, and the political charge was brought before Pilate. Notice the two cross-examinations that take place in the passage, one before the Sanhedrin and one before Pilate. Let's look at the theological one, the one before the Sanhedrin. First of all, look at verse 67. If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I asked you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from uh, his own lips. And when you compare the other gospel records, you discover that it was actually the high priest himself who carried out the cross-examination and put the questions to Jesus. His first question is straightforward enough. Tell us, are you the Christ? In response, Jesus says in verse 69, but from uh, now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, we looked at this title, Son of Man, before. When we think of the titles Son of Man and Son of God, we tend to think of them in watertight compartments, that the Son of Man refers to His humanity and the Son of God refers to His deity. But uh, the original import of that uh, title, Son of Man, is much more glorious and exalted It was used of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7 when he says, In my vision at night, there it is there, In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, and all peoples, nations, and men of every language, notice this, worshipped him, His dominion is an everlasting dominion and will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will be destroyed. So here in Daniel 7, the Son of Man is an exalted, God-like figure who is worshipped. And to worship any other person other than the true and living God in Jewish understanding was blasphemous. And Jesus in this court before this Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, clearly identifies himself as the exalted, divine Son of Man in Daniel 7. Verse 69, he says, but from now on the Son of Man will be seated. You see the glory? Will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. 
Now, it is clear that the high priest and his cronies understood that title, Son of Man, in an exalted sense. They, they understood what Jesus was saying because they asked him in verse 7, Are you the Son of God? Jesus claimed to be the Son of Man. They knew that this was the exalted use of that title, and they say, are you not a son of God, but are you the son of God? Do you have the same nature? Do you have the same likeness, bear the same likeness as God himself? That's the question. They couldn't have been any more explicit or any more direct. Are you the son of God? And notice how Jesus responds in verse 70. You say that I am. Now, there's a little phraseology here that was used in New Testament times that we might miss, but it says really what Jesus is saying, yes, yes, you've said it, I am. Now, do you remember the exalted name the covenant name of God in the Old Testament. You remember Moses at the burning bush when he's been called and commissioned to lead the Israelites out of bondage and bring them to the promised land. He says, who shall I say sent me to you? And God speaking from that bush says, I am who I am. Yahweh Yahweh, that covenant name for God, that exclusive name for God in the Old Testament revealed to Moses and to Israel. And here Jesus, in answer to the, the question, are you the Son of God? He says, I am. And the other gospel records tell us that the high priest tore his robes and said, you have heard the blasphemy, because this was a name that they wouldn't even have on their lips for fear of breaking the third commandment and taking his name in vain. And here Jesus takes the divine name, and he applies it to himself. You have heard the blasphemy. And on that charge, the charge of blasphemy, of Jesus claiming to be God, they sentence him to death. Then he is taken to Pilate, and a political charge is brought against him. Under Roman occupation, the Jews had lost the right to capital punishment. They could condemn a man to death, but they couldn't actually put him to death. They were toothless tigers. So if Jesus was going to be put to death, the Romans had to put him to death. They had to carry out the sentence. But of course, the Romans weren't interested in the theological nuances of Judaism, the Jews had to find some other reason, a good enough reason, for the Romans to convict him. So, when he comes before Pilate, they charge him with treason, verse, uh, chapter 23 and verse 2. And they begin to accuse him, saying, we find this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, which was a, a gross on truth, because remember he said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. Do you see what they're doing? Because the Romans weren't interested in the theological argument and the theological issues, they accuse him of sedition and treason. He is undermining the laws of Rome. He claims to be a king. 
So Pilate asks him in verse 3, are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus replies, you have said so. But remember in John's gospel, he qualifies that statement and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And on that basis, Pilate says, I find no charge against him. So you have these two charges. You have the theological charge of blasphemy that he claimed to be God. And then you have this this uh, political charge of treason. One was leveled by the Jewish court, the other by the Roman court. Blasphemy and treason. Now, I've mentioned this before, but I think it's very significant that when you think of Adam in the Garden of Eden, those were the two crimes that he was guilty of. Do you remember that? He wanted to be like God. Blasphemy. He defied the king's laws, treason, treason and blasphemy. And the first Adam is guilty of treason and blasphemy. And along comes the second Adam, and he is charged with the same crimes, treason and blasphemy. And on those two charges, he is put to death. He stands in the place of the first Adam, and his offspring is charged with the same charges and he lays down his life. He is executed on those charges. What mercy, what grace is seen even in the trials of Jesus. So, the trials that he endured, the charges that were pressed. Thirdly, the justice that was denied. As I said by way of introduction, that this former Lord Chief Justice of England described the trial of Jesus or the trials of Jesus as the greatest monstrosity of justice in the annals of legal history. And you see that again and again, mainly in the Jewish parts of the trial, but also in the, the, the Roman section uh, of the trial. The Jews actually had a very advanced and sophisticated legal system. There were all kinds of rules and regulations, checks and balances uh, to protect the defendant in the judicial system, to give him a fair trial. I've already mentioned that they stated categorically that no trial could be held at night or in private homes. Jesus was tried and examined in the homes of Annas and Caiaphas at night. Secondly, no trial could take place during a Jewish feast. That was the law. But Jesus was tried at the time of the Passover. Thirdly, at least two witnesses had to agree, agree on any evidence before it was admitted. We know that from the other Gospels that the witnesses contradicted themselves, and so that evidence should have been rejected. No defendant could, uh, fourthly, incriminate himself. What he said from his own lips should have been inadmissible as evidence. Yet we know in verse 71 that it was from Jesus' own testimony that they, uh, they convicted him. We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Fifthly, the chief priest acted as a judge, and he was supposed to be neutral. But he, in the trial of Jesus, becomes the chief a prosecutor piling him with questions. Sixthly, 
When the judgment was made, it began, remember 72 members of the Sanhedrin, it began by the youngest member of the Sanhedrin casting his vote and ended up with the oldest, progressing to the oldest member of the Sanhedrin so that the younger members wouldn't be subject to peer pressure. But in this trial, the priest actually becomes the chief prosecutor and leads the court. Then lastly, a day and a night had to elapse before the sentence could be carried out, just in case that anyone came forward with mitigating evidence. Jesus was crucified the same day that he was tried. This was a a terrible miscarriage of justice, and over and over again, they broke their own rules. The court was supposed to be impartial, but they um, were wholly unjust and inconsistent. You see it again with Pilate. After interrogating Jesus in chapter 23 in verse 4, he says, I find no guilt in this man. I find no guilt in this man. That is actually a judicial term in Roman law. It's equivalent to our not guilty. I find no guilt in this man. So he is um, acquitted and yet at the same time convicted. The courts were supposed to be neutral, but in the brutality and the mockery that they meted out to Jesus, we see that they were biased from the beginning. This was a travesty of justice. The trials that were endured, the charges that were pressed, the justice that was denied. The fourth thing I want you to notice is the verdicts that were passed. In each of these trials, there was a fourth to come. Jesus was found guilty. Now, we know he was found guilty because at each trial, he is passed on to the next stage. The Sanhedrin passed him to Pilate, Pilate passed him to Herod, and Herod passed him back to Pilate. In each of those stages, the judges had the power to acquit him and to release him into society. But at each stage, he was passed on to face another trial and another judge. In fact, that phrase there in verse 7 of chapter 23, he sent him over to Herod, was again a legal phrase from the Roman judicial system. It's equivalent to our being sent down for his crimes. Jesus was sent over to Pilate, then to Herod, and back to Pilate. At each court, uh, in that action, by allowing him to go forward to the next court, they were declaring him guilty. Now, we've got to ask ourselves then, why would they pass that guilty verdict? Why would they declare him to be guilty by passing him on to the next court? Well, with the Sanhedrin, I think there was stubborn unbelief. Look at verses 60, uh, verse 67 of chapter 22. Uh, if you are the Christ, they said, tell us. And Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe. Do you see the problem? They weren't interested in justice. They were present. Uh, um, um, I've forgotten the word. They were prejudiced. 
uh, right from the outset of the evidence. No matter, what, no matter what Jesus said, what Jesus did, they were never going to believe. Their minds were completely closed. They f- refused to think and consider that he might actually be the Christ, stubborn unbelief. With Pilate, there was shameful indecision. After Pilate interrogated Jesus in chapter 23 and verse 3, are you the king of the Jews? And remember from John's gospel that he gave that lengthy uh, defense, defending, defining his kingdom, my kingdom is not of this world. Nevertheless, Pilate's response is, and remember this is legal language, I find no guilt in this man, but because the Jews insisted in verse 5, he sends him to Herod. He declares him guilty. He declares him not guilty, but he allows the trial to proceed. He refuses to make a decision. He passes the buck. In fact, when you read John's gospel, you discover on seven occasions, Pilate tried to release Jesus. But he capitulated to the peer pressure of the Jews. Shameful indecision. So you see with the Sanhedrin, stubborn unbelief, he's guilty. With Pilate, you have shameful indecision, guilty. And with Herod, you have shallow curiosity. In verse 8 of 23, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Herod was fascinated by Jesus. We know from Luke 9 that he knew of Jesus' reputation and his miracles, and we're told that he wanted to see him. But his interest is superficial. He views Jesus as a miracle worker. He treats him like some performing dog or performing seal. He was hoping to see some miracle. Now, obviously, he believed that Jesus could perform miracles if he wanted to see a miracle, but he wasn't interested in his character. He wasn't interested in his message. He wasn't interested in his call. His admiration, if you like, if you could call it that, was shallow and superficial. And because Jesus didn't pander to that or satisfy his curiosity, he found him guilty and handed him on to Pilate for his final trial. He's impressed with Jesus superficially, but instead of releasing him as he should have done and as he had the power to do, he allows the trial to proceed. He, believe in Jesus, he believes in Jesus' power to perform miracles, but he ends up mocking him, putting a, a, a robe on him and sending him back to Pilate for sentencing. He acted out of shallow curiosity. So at each stage, he's found guilty. The Sanhedrin, they find him guilty. Pilate, they, he found him guilty. Herod, he found him guilty. And the reason for their uh, verdicts, stubborn unbelief, shameful indecision, and shallow curiosity. Now, that's still true today. Each of us is called to make a decision to pass a verdict on Jesus Christ. And the eternal destiny of our souls hangs on that verdict. If we believe He is the Christ, the Son of God, if we believe that He came into the world and bled and died in the place of sinners, that He bore punishment for our sin in His body on the tree. And if we trust in that, we will ultimately be saved and brought into heaven. But if we do not believe, we will be condemned and condemned forever. 
And many people, many, many people in this world sit in judgment of Jesus Christ and reject him and condemn him for the very same reasons that in these three courts. They reject him because of stubborn unbelief. Just like the Sanhedrin, they refuse to believe in any possibility that he is who he said he was. They will not consider him. Their minds are closed. It was Bertrand Russell, the philosopher of uh, the 20th century, he said the trouble in the 20th century is that people would rather die than think. People will make judgments about Christ and Christianity without even thinking it's three, I remember being on a beach mission team in, in Wales, and the, the man was up preaching, and there was a, a heckler shouting out abuse. Hecklers are always great for gathering a crowd, but he shouted out, sure, the Bible's full of contradictions. And the preacher handed him the Bible, and he said, well, well show me one. And he says, ah, well, 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 I actually have never read the Bible prejudice, refusing to think, having a closed mind, stubborn unbelief. And secondly, there are are people who are just like Pilate who are guilty of shameful indecision. They know the claims of Jesus are true, but they don't act upon it. They, if you like, they passively reject him. They go through life in a bubble, uh, refusing to believe in the implications of who Jesus is. They are guilty of the sin of procrastination, of putting it off and never starting it out. Pilate tried to release Jesus, but as Samuel Johnson once said, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So you have stubborn unbelief, shameful indecision, and shallow curiosity. Some people, like Herod, are fascinated with Jesus. They admire him, they're interested in him, but it's a a superficial curiosity. They never get to grips with the real teaching of Jesus and his real demands. They like his gentleness. They like his compassion. They like his tenderness. They like certain things that he said, like turn the other cheek, love your enemies, or or, um, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But they don't like everything he says because when he says you must be born again, they don't like that. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me, they don't like that. That's a bit heavy. They admire Jesus at a distance, and they are selective in what they believe about him. And just like Herod, they ultimately reject uh, reject him. Do you, like these others, reject him and refuse him and declare him to be an unsuitable Savior? the verdict that was passed, the trials that were endured, the charges that were pressed, the justice that was denied, the verdict that was passed. The last thing I want you to notice is the judgment that was anticipated. It's interesting when Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man, remember from Daniel 7, he says in verse 69 of chapter 22, but from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, when you read Daniel 7, you will discover that it's all about the judging of the nations. 
So Jesus says to the Sanhedrin, I stand before you now in judgment, but one day you're going to stand before me in judgment. The one they considered convicted and condemned would one day judge them. Sobering thought, isn't it? The one you reject and refuse will one day judge you. And I think you get a little picture of that in our Lord's dealings with Herod. Look at chapter 23 in verse 9. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. He made no answer. But he said nothing to Herod. And the reason he said nothing to Herod is because he had nothing to say to Herod. This Herod was the Herod who used to hear John the Baptist gladly. This Herod was the Herod who had John the Baptist arrested. This Herod was the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded. And Jesus has nothing to say to him. William Henriksen says he desired no answer. He deserved, sorry, no answer. And he received no answer. He had his opportunity with John the Baptist who talked to him and reasoned with him and called him to repentance. But he rejected the Word of God and tried to silence the voice of God. And now God has nothing to say to him. Jesus stood before Herod in judgment. But more significantly, Herod stood before Jesus in judgment. And Jesus has nothing to say. All hope for Herod had gone. He rejected and turned away once too often. And God gave him up and gave him over, as Paul says in Romans. What a searching, sobering lesson that is for us. You make your decisions and you pass your judgments on Jesus Christ. But one day you will stand before him in judgment. And maybe even in this life you will reject him once too often. And finally he will reject you. That's the, why the Bible says today if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Because the day might come when you no longer hear his voice. If you pass judgment on Jesus Christ, and reject him. You need to understand that he will pass judgment on you for that rejection. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. The trials that were endured, the charges that were pressed, the justice that was denied, the verdicts uh, that were passed, and the judgment that was anticipated. Amen.